Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I got my driving license down at the Sloth DMV, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a reclusive but curious guy desperate to get a closer look at the nightmare-strewn streets of Paris as we watch through 61 films and counting. Coming in with the sword of knowledge swinging and armed with facts galore is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you feeling this week? How do we find you? Yeah, I'm good. I mean, fairly tired. We've just both had a, a big weekend there by our standards, in a thatched cottage in Kent. A quite Disney-esque, a quite Seven Dwarfs-esque cottage, I would say. Well, the thing that it struck me as, which I didn't say to my wife at the time, because she already basically didn't sleep the first night because she got a bit spooked out by the cottage in the middle of nowhere vibes, uh, and kind of appropriate for our guest this week, is that, Sam, when we were in the hot tub at this property at night looking back onto the face of the cottage the thing that i could not stop thinking about was the cabin from evil dead there was a a window either side glowing like eyes in the dark a big gaping maw of a door at the front it was spooky as hell but we had a great time snow white by day evil dead by night So before we get stuck in, we have a tiny bit of business to pick up on from our Pocahontas episode last time around, which is the case of Stephen Schwartz, lyricist, wordsmith of Pocahontas, who is back for our Hunchback of Notre Dame episode, and the case of the incredible lyrics, dig, 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 diggity dig. (laughs) You voted on Twitter, we put the vote out there for whether that was a genius lyric or the worst thing Disney's ever written. And Sam, your side won. It was so close. It was 49% to 51%, but the nose had it. It was a bury it in the ground. Dig, dig, dig up the ground. Bury that song. Never listen to it again. How are you feeling about that result? I mean, it's bittersweet because obviously I feel very slightly vindicated that the people went with no diggity rather than yes, diggity. But (laughs) it's a bit of a pyrrhic victory because I realised... In the dialogue that was ongoing on Twitter, there's some very good lyrics in that song. With all you've got in your boys, dig up Virginia boys, that's an excellent rhyme. Like, Stephen Schwartz does know what he's doing, he's got a high pedigree. And I, I do want the people to know specifically the lyric I was most annoyed at was dig, dig, diggity dig. I just think <laughs> you can do better. It's not to say there's no other good lyrics in the song. Generally, the song on the whole wasn't my favourite, but dig, dig, diggity dig was the issue. But look, Schwartz is back, back, back at the back on this one. And I (laughs) think he's coming correct on this occasion. I think we're going to get much better work from him this time around for whatever reason. So 
Schwartz, like, I'm not, he's not an enemy of the show at this point. He knows what he's doing. He knows his way around a rhyme. And are you excited for Hunchback? Because this is maybe one within the Renaissance that doesn't get talked about as much. And that's always your thing with this podcast. You relish getting to talk about the films that are much less widely spoken of. So are you hyped for Hunchback? Extremely, yeah. And it's not one that I've seen loads either, along with Pocahontas. I didn't really watch this as a kid. I only came to it a bit older, but I was a bit of a gothy teen, so this was one that I watched a bit more as a teenager, got really into some of the uh, spookier songs on the soundtrack, yeah. It's a real odd bod of a movie, it's got great stuff, it's got less great stuff. Yeah, lots of things to pick up and, and talk about, very thematically rich as well. So, before we get into any of that, for this episode we are very lucky to be joined by an extremely special guest, And while we'd never describe him as our Frollo, truly nobody deserves that, he is a master of the macabre whose love of the gothic is gargantuan. He's never met a TDLF he didn't like, and he knows a thing or two about telling the story of cinema over time in podcast form. So he's going to fit right in. He's the legend behind one of the greatest, geekiest, and spookiest movie pods out there, The Evolution of Horror, who, like basically everyone you'll meet in the horror community, is one of the nicest, friendliest guys going. So give a huge Disneyversity welcome to the one and only Mike Munzer. Hello. Hello. Wow, what a lovely introduction. Thank you so much for having me. Oh man, I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, We've recorded things in the past. I've joined you on a Patreon episode of The Evolution of Horror. We've done Empire stuff together. Now we get to welcome you into Disneyversity. I love it. And, you know, like I I was thinking to myself, oh, it's always such a nice change to not talk about horror and talk about something wholesome. But actually, I think maybe this is darker than some of the stuff I've discussed on my podcast, (laughs) this movie. So, you know, it's not going to be that different for me. I mean, when I guested for you, it was because you were doing a Jurassic miniseries last year in the run-up to Jurassic World Dominion. Yes. Uh, So that was less on the spooky end. It was, actually. Yeah, obviously those films have got kind of their roots in sort of monster movies and that kind of thing. But really, they're they're family fun, aren't they, those movies? As is this, technically, right? But yeah, (laughs) it's got some dark stuff in it, which we'll get into. (laughs) Fun for all the family here. Right. (laughs) If your family is Frollo and his fiends. (laughs) It's great to have you on because you're about to kick off a whole new season of The Evolution of Horror. Uh, If you've not listened to this podcast, Mike, set it up for people and let people know about your new season that's about to start. Oh, sure. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, my podcast, The Evolution of Horror, it looks at, as the title suggests, the sort of the history of horror. In some ways, it's not dissimilar to what you guys do because I essentially start with sort of early cinema with the origins of horror and sort of work my way chronologically all the way through to sort of modern day movies. But obviously doing that with a whole genre means you'd never really get anywhere because, you know, you'd spend sort of five years just talking about all the movies made in the 1930s, potentially. So I've kind of split it into different categories and seasons and subgenres, essentially. So I started by doing a whole season on slasher movies and then ghost stories and then folk horror and zombie movies and all these kind of things, vampire movies. Each season, I'm joined by a different guest each week. We look at a different movie from within that subgenre we kind of discuss it and and look at its place in horror history essentially and we kind of go chronologically week by week and yeah I'm just about to start the next season which is a particularly dark one it's all about home invasion movies which is I think for so many people 
a lot of horror fans included, one of the most frightening and sort of triggering subgenres of horror. We all have that fear of of having our home invaded by, you know, burglars or psychopaths or whatever it might be. So I'm kind of excited because I'm I'm looking forward to really dive deep into what many people consider to be the scariest and darkest movies in the genre. Yeah, I can't wait for it to get started. Where does Hunchback of Notre Dame sit? It's kind of, it's gothic. Mm. Is it a a cathedral invasion horror? Is that a a genre? (laughs) He lives there. They invade his home at the end. They do. They do. They do. I mean, like, is it insensitive to call it a sort of monster movie? Like, you could imagine in the 1930s, Quasimodo being played by somebody like Boris Karloff and kind of really feeling like it would belong in the kind of gothic horror tradition of those sorts of movies, you know? And, and what was so great about the monster movies back in the day was that they were often kind of sympathetic creatures. You know, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein's Creature, for example, or even the Creature from the Black Lagoon and so many others the Wolfman, the mummy, they had these kind of, often they had romances, you know, King Kong, I mean, we'll talk about it, but you know, there is a King Kong comparison, I think, uh, at certain moments in this film. And yeah, so I, I feel like, I don't know about a sort of a subgenre, but I think in terms of an era, you could definitely put The Hunchback of Notre Dame in with those kind of 30s gothic monster movies, you know? Well, they did a couple, right? Like, Lon Chaney did it in the 1920s. Yeah. Like, most known for Phantom of the Opera. And he was, like, the makeup guy, right? He's, like, the yeah. man of a thousand faces. I'm going to freak myself up in all of these movies. I'm going to, like, do all of this, like, wild stuff with makeup to make mm-hmm. myself into a quote-unquote monster. And Quasimodo was part of his portfolio. And then I think Charles Lawton did it in the 30s or 40s. And I think yeah. that was universal because you see these things... Definitely not today. Cosimodo is not part of the dark universe of gods and monsters or whatever, but <laughs> he has been marketed in the past as one of the pantheon of, of universal monsters. It's kind of like a third tier universal monster. Yeah. And they used to make like model kits in the 70s and 80s, and that was like a big part of how people consume that brand. And I've seen like model kits of Cosimodo next to ones of the Bride of Frankenstein, the Creature of the Black Lagoon, and all that. Yeah. I wonder if when this Disney movie came out, if that was probably the most visible representation of Cosimodo in American popular culture was like as a universal monster movie. Yeah, and actually when you look at the Charles Lawton Cosimodo, it, the Disney version does look a lot like it. You know, the yeah. the, the look they've given him, the, the makeup that Charles Lawton had, it's very similar to how we see Cosimodo in the Disney version. Yeah. If we didn't have so much to get through, I feel like we could spin off an entire separate podcast. One of Sam's favourite things is all the spooky boys, all the universal monsters. <laughs> Sam, tell, just for the listeners to be included what's your what's your dream project with these guys i really like it when you've got frankenstein dracula and the wolfman and they're all mates like that's kind of <laughs> that is a, its own subgenre, and i would love yeah you, know, you could do a season on that right because mm. there's a whole history of it whether it's like the original like house of frankenstein house of dracula where they're not really mates to be fair in those they're at odds but then as you get into the 60s you get stuff like the groovy ghoulies which is a cartoon where they're all in a band you've got the general mills serials like frank and berry and count chocula and all of that and yeah, then yeah, like yeah. this Mad Monster Party, that's a stop-motion movie. Obviously, the classic Halloween hit, The Monster Mash. I just love it when they're all mates. And these days, it's like, oh, we're going to do like Dark Universe, Universal Monsters. All these guys are going to cross over. And it's like, yeah, but I prefer it when they're just kind of hanging out. <laughs> yeah. 
So much fun. It's so true, isn't it? Yeah. There was a Doctor Who episode, I think, in the 60s where they meet Dracula and Frankenstein's oh, creature and all at one, you know, like, yeah, there are, you're right. That's an amazing idea. Just go and tick off every single kind of crossover yeah. event where they're mates or they're all living in a house together or they're all hanging out. Yeah. I could go on Hotel Transylvania. Uh, <laughs> big bad beetle bogs, which is like a, a Power Rangers ripoff where these teenagers turn into like Power Ranger style superheroes, but also for no real reason they hang out with Dracula and Frankenstein, the Wolfman. Exactly, yeah. And they're all mates, monster mates. It. That's my pitch for a podcast: monster mates. You love go it. through all of the the times when they're all mates. Mike, you named this one straight away when I was like, oh, I'd love to have you on the podcast at some point. You were like, ooh, I'll do Hunchback. So do you stray towards the dark side, even in Disney? <laughs> I think I must have, right? Because I do remember really enjoying this movie. For I was born in 1987, so I grew up, I guess, my Disney movies were these 90s ones. But I actually didn't love some of them as much as some people did. I think I found Beauty and the Beast a bit too romancy, a bit too schmaltzy. Uh, I actually love it now. I think it's a masterpiece. But when I was a kid, I was a bit bored by some of those. I loved The Lion King. But I think for whatever reason, I mean, I probably know the reason because clearly I've always been a bit in love with this kind of like weird gothic tales. But Hunchback of Notre Dame, I remember vividly seeing in the cinema and really enjoying. Of all of the 90s ones, it feels like it's sort of been forgotten a bit, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah, I I sort of straight away thought of that as one that would be interesting to discuss. Yeah, Sam, we're going to get into this as we end up talking about the film. But this was my first viewing of Hunchback of Notre Dame. I'd never seen this film before. And my initial takeaway, which we will dig into over time, is... It's kind of Beauty and the Beast for goths, is kind of yeah. how I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so interesting, Mike, uh, that, that that is your pick here. Uh, so tell us more about your history with Disney movies. Which ones did you grow up on? Which ones did you love as a kid? So it was this, it was The Lion King is, is mm. unassailable as a classic. What else did you enjoy? You know, I guess like with so many of us back then, it was just whatever you happened to own on VHS or whatever you happened to have recorded off the telly. And I remember very clearly I had Jungle Book, and Robin Hood. Those two are kind of similar too, right? They feel like they reuse a lot of the same animation, the same voices. Absolutely, yeah. And I had the two of them recorded on the same VHS and I watched those two on repeat. They were my two absolute favourites. I think Jungle Book still remains my favourite. Like, I, I have a real special place in my heart for it. Those kind of funny slightly more goofy kind of like hippie movies from the 60s and 70s right you know and uh yeah absolutely loved both of those so those were the ones that I watched on hard repeat and then I had a couple of others I had Peter Pan which I loved as well and I also had I don't know if you guys have already discussed these but do you remember the Disney sing-along songs kind of videos that you can get where it was just like that has come up once or twice yeah I I loved them I had two or three of these collections where it would be like a clip show almost where you would just see songs from different Disney movies from over the last sort of 90 years and you'd get the the lyrics along the bottom a little mouse would kind of bounce along on the words and and um, I remember there were so many songs and clips and scenes that I knew from Disney films and I hadn't seen the rest of the films until much much later when they became available but some of these even had like zippity doodah from song of the south on them and stuff so i remember being like very familiar with some of these really weird like lesser known disney numbers and disney scenes just from these sing-along videos that i had so yeah they were on sort of hard rotation for me at the time as well yeah it's just been interesting going through because uh, where we're up to in the podcast so far, Disney has flirted with horror 
a fair amount along the way. Obviously, lots of fairy tales lean into horror tropes mm. and territory. Uh, Fantasia has some outwardly horrorish stuff with our boy Chernabog, the big demon who rises at night. We've had the Black Cauldron, which I think we're going to end up referencing at various points in this episode, or at least I have in my notes. Uh, yeah, did you see other spooky Disney films back in the day? Yeah, actually, I remember thinking some of them were a bit too dark and spooky for me. Fantasia, I just didn't really get as a kid. And I'm sure so many people have said that, you know, it's weird when you, especially if you grew up in the era of Disney that we grew up in, with these kind of like big, warm, Broadway musically kind of movies, and then to go back and watch something like Fantasia, you're like, what the hell is this? And even moments of things like Snow White, it's something that almost feels kind of German expressionist about some scenes in Snow White and absolutely traumatized by Pinocchio when they turn into donkeys. Oh you know, God. like it is <laughs> particularly that weird early Disney. It's mm. absolutely filled with horror, isn't it? Yeah, and some of it I found almost too much as a kid. Um, and I've sort of come to love as an adult horror fan, you know? <laughs> Some of it I find too much now, even as an adult horror fan. Yeah. Uh, I end up watching a lot of horror movies in my spare time. I love that genre. But our Pinocchio episode was basically my therapy session with Sam. It's like, <laughs> what the hell have I just watched? It's horrific from beginning to end, isn't it, that film? Yeah. So what are your favourite Disney films now? Are there any more recent ones or ones you've seen as an adult, as a grown-up, that now have a special place in your heart that you didn't necessarily love as a kid? Which ones warm your heart these days? I think in terms of new films over the last sort of 10 to 20 years, it's a very obvious answer, but Frozen is brilliant. It felt like real classic Disney in the sense that it felt like we hadn't had in a very long time. Is Zootopia, is Zootropolis, is that part of the kind of mainline is, yeah, Disney stuff? I loved that. I thought that was so funny, so smart, interesting, great characters, warm. Really, really loved that. So that those have been a couple of sort of recent faves for me. Nice. And I don't know if this was announced since our last episode, Sam, or we haven't mentioned it yet, but a Zootropolis slash Zootopia sequel is coming. They're working on that right now, uh, mm. along with Frozen 3. Oh, Sam, we've got so much to catch up on, but we also <laughs> have plenty to discuss on Hunchback. So that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. So this time, we're going back to Paris for the darkest tale in the Disney Renaissance, with 1996's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, on the evolution of horror, Mike does a smart thing, and when he has guests on... He makes them sum up the plots of the films so that he doesn't have to do it himself. My solution that I've worked out is just make Sam do it every time. So Sam, can you sum up the plot of The Hunchback of Notre Dame for us? It's a complex one. There's, there's a lot going on in this movie. Tee people up. Yeah. And would you believe that this is one of the times where I haven't written it down in advance? <laughs> so we'll see how far we get. Straight from the top of your dome. Yeah. Okay. So the villainous Judge Claude Frollo murders Quasimodo's mother when he is a baby, this is so dark already, and <laughs> takes that baby and raises it as his own. Quasimodo grows up isolated in the bell tower of Notre Dame where he is the bell ringer until he falls for a beautiful Romany woman called Esmeralda along with every other man in the movie. So we get a kind of love square between Quasimodo, Frollo and the captain of the guard Phoebus. Frollo being that he is the villain, decides to take his lust for Esmeralda out on the Romany people, burns down half of Paris in his attempt to find her. Quasimodo and Phoebus come together to rescue Esmeralda, save the day, and I guess it's a happy ending. 
for everybody apart from Frollo, who is dead, and Quasimodo, who is alone. <laughs> Yay! Hooray! Fun for all the families. We <laughs> that said. was very difficult to improvise. You did a great job. That was stream of consciousness stuff. Yeah, this is a tricky movie. So there is plenty going on here. Just to pick up from where we were last time. Pocahontas was not the runaway success or the Oscar hit that Disney was aiming for in the wake of The Lion King. So what did that mean for the studio going forward? The wheels must have already been turning pretty significantly on Hunchback by that point, right? Yes, they were. So Hunchback was put into production during the Katzenberg tenure. Katzenberg is still a reasonably influential figure on this film, at least in its early stages. The idea... Mad that it is, by the way, to adapt this gigantic, gothic, sprawling, horrific novel that is really very much for adults and try and make that into a children's film. It is so wild that they even consider this. The idea came from an executive called David Stanton, and he pitched it to Katzenberg, who of course snapped it up because, like, why the hell not at this point? But it is strange, right? Because we've quickly seen Disney move over the last few films away from their bread and butter of, like, folk and fairy tales and children's literature, and now they're adapting real stories like Pocahontas, classic novels like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and, like, there's this ambition which is admirable, but it's also maybe a little bit hubristic, especially if they're going to fall back on Disney convention when they're making these movies rather than commit to telling these stories in a way that do justice to their sources. Because, like, this is such a mishmash. You can feel the strain here of, like, forcing this Hugo source into the Disney Renaissance mold, but that is what Katzenberg was tasking the studio with doing. So, as you say, this is a Victor Hugo adaptation an 1800s novel. Can you give us a little bit of backstory for the novel? What world are we in here? So it was written in the 1800s, but it's set in medieval France. And it's basically, Victor Hugo was upset that the cathedral, Notre Dame Cathedral, was like falling into disrepair a little bit. He saw in like France at that time, a lack of respect for the Gothic architecture that characterized some of their most beautiful and iconic buildings. And he wrote the novel which in the original French is called Notre Dame de Paris. It is named after the cathedral, not after any of its characters. He wrote that novel as an attempt to promote Notre Dame as a building and try and change France's attitude towards its architecture. And it succeeded as well. Like, it did change the way that kind of the government was going to treat that cathedral. It changed its place in the popular consciousness. And I do think it's interesting that even in the original English translation, the novel was called The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And in every English adaptation, it's called The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And Quasimodo becomes a more and more central figure in these stories over the course of the history of adapting this novel. I mean, he was like, okay, we need to do something to make people love Notre Dame. I'm going to write the freakiest book you've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> but long passages of the novel are just him describing Notre Dame. There's long right. stretches of it where there's no story and it's just him talking about the building to try and convince people that it's great, which seems self-evident, but apparently at the time, people didn't care that much. Who among us has been to Notre Dame? Have you guys been to Notre Dame? I have been to Notre Dame. Mike, have you been? 
No, I don't think I've ever been. I've been in the last couple of years. I don't think I went inside, but I went to Paris a couple of years ago. My wife Lizzie and I, we were like, let's let's go to see Notre Dame. And we came out of whatever the metro station was that was closest by. And there was this church and we were like, oh, that's cool. Look at that. That's Notre Dame. And then we were like, oh, wait, no, that's not Notre Dame. That's just a random church. Went around the corner <laughs> and we were like, there it is. Wow. Okay. Oh, no, that's pretty good. That's yeah, that's a good church. And nope, that was just another random church. Turned another the corner and then we saw it. it's huge absolutely massive this was around the time that there was that big fire recently uh so there were literally like people crying outside the gates of the notre dame it was pretty wild uh, but yeah victor hugo his ploy to write a freaky book to make people care about this cathedral it worked but this is an intentional had to be an intentional return to darker territory for disney you don't make a movie this dark by mistake do you know if there were concerns among the studio about making this film because it's probably the darkest film since the black cauldron if we are doing a cinderella style tagline for this movie on the poster it would say darkest since black cauldron rather than greatest since snow white was this an intentional return to darker territory what were the worries for the studio about making this film i don't think it was intentional i don't think anyone sat around and said let's make something that's going to terrify people i think Probably the impulse was, let's try and have another really worthy Mm. hit. So we've tried it with Pocahontas, or we are in the process of trying it with Pocahontas, which is this epic, true-life, alleged romance. So let's try it with another, like, really high-profile, high-art source. Let's try and make it a proper serious film. And they obviously bottled it at some stage, because that's not quite what we end up with. But you'd actually be surprised, like, for example, the song Hellfire, which is probably the single darkest moment of the movie, the villain's song. Apparently there was no pushback on anything in there whatsoever. They were more concerned with things like religion and how this portrays the church. So, for example, Frollo in the novel is the Archdeacon. And in this, they split that into two separate characters. You've got the Archdeacon, who's a benevolent figure, and you've got Frollo, who is the Minister of Justice, and is more powerful in a lot of ways, and that makes him more of a threat. And it also gives them license to make him even more villainous, but he is not a religious figure. Katzenberg was also very concerned, deeply concerned, about Phoebus having facial hair. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Which, again, classic Katzenberg. He's firing a few shots off into the dark as he's being dragged out the door. Like, there's some great Katzenberg choices on this film. But apparently he had a strict no facial hair for leading men rule across right. all of the films he produced. And as soon as he left, they were like, all right, we're going to give Phoebus a beard. So you'd be surprised the things that the were concerned about and the things that they <laughs> let slide with no notes. Amazing. Wow. So just before we get into the film itself, we have returning directors here. It's interesting. We've already mentioned Beauty and the Beast a couple of times. The directors of that film, Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, return. We have Alan Menken back on musical duties along with Stephen Schwartz, who is doing lyrics again. Did they have a sense of, let's get the dream team back together and make some more magic? Well, I can tell you exactly how Trousdale and Wise got involved. They were working on, this is such a strange idea, they were working on a movie that was going to be an adaptation of the story, the the Greek myth of Orpheus, but all the characters are whales. 
<laughs> what? And we found out recently they were also at one point pitching West Side Story with cats and yes. the catcher in the rye with dogs. So this is the latest <laughs> in the line of adaptations of classic stories, I guess maybe inspired by Oliver and Company, starring just random animals. Like they had a dartboard with classic stories and a dartboard with animals and they'd hit on Orpheus and whales. <laughs> Oh my God. I love it. And then one day they get a phone call from Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he said, <laughs> Drop everything. I've got your next picture. It's the hunchback of Notre Dame. And that was the entire conversation. And they were like, All right, okay. <laughs> I guess it's the hunchback of Notre Dame. I guess we're going to throw all these paintings of whales in the trash. But I think. We do need to consider this as a Trousdale and Wise movie, because they didn't make many. They didn't make as many as Musker and Clements, who did. By this point, Aladdin, The Little Mermaid, and The Great Mouse Detective, and they're about to make Hercules. Trousdale and Wise, this was their second Disney film as directors after Beauty and the Beast, and it has a lot in common with Beauty and the Beast, right? It, this feels like a movie made by that same pair of directors. It feels like kind of an auteur movie. It's got that film sweeping gothic tone and i think these two films feel more of a piece than anything that like musker and clements directed or really any director or team of directors since wolfgang reitherman who made those hippy dippy groovy 70s and 60s movies like jungle book and aristocats and robin hood this feels like a directorly like auteurist project almost when you find out it's the same team that made beauty okie doke well i think it's time to get going because what's that off in the distance I can hear the bells of Notre Dame. <laughs> clang, 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 clang. What a banger. <laughs> so good. Let's get into it, guys. Now, I'd got the sense over the past few episodes that we were building towards something pretty dark, pretty intense with the Hunchback of Notre Dame, plus the fact I was getting messages from Mike saying, whoa, the opening of Hunchback of Notre Dame is way more intense than I remember. Sam was warning me about what was going to be happening in this film. And even then, I was not prepared. We're talking about <laughs> the darkest since Black Cauldron. I'm going to say probably the spookiest, most ominous opening since The Fox and the Hound and those terrifying drums. The way this film opens, we have a blank screen and already the bells are going, the choir is belting out some big Latin tunes. This is serious business. We have the medieval writing coming up on the screen, and it kicks off this opening sequence, this kind of five-minute introduction that is so arresting. I was spooked but enthralled right from the off with this insane opening. Sam, we have to talk about the tracking shot, the Beauty and the Beast-esque, Belle in the Village, mega, like, zooming through all the little bits of the town up to the Notre Dame itself, also throwing us right back to that incredible opening tracking shot in Pinocchio. This is the past and the present of Disney clashing together in one big moment. Yeah, I mean, it's you get a few other shots like that as well. There are a few shots, like, there's one right in the middle of Out There, Quasimodo's song, and there's one... After that, as we first meet Phoebus, where we get these unbroken tracking shots that take us either from the cathedral and into the town, or from the town and into the cathedral, which highlights, I think, the interconnectedness of the communities which surround this structure. And 
you know, it kind of allows us insight into the going-ons of the town, which is what Quasimodo fetishes from his vantage point. Like, he's almost got this rear window-like relationship with what's going on in the world below him. But I think, even though this is very much a Quasimodo-centric story, this is maybe part of an impulse to respect the fact that Hugo's novel is really more about the cathedral and its environs than any individual characters. Like, we get a real sense of what is this place like? What is this part of Paris like? What's the surroundings of the cathedral? And what role does the cathedral play? Like, it it imposes itself over the entire vista. So we are kind of seeing things from Quasimodo's perspective, but also from the cathedral's perspective as we zoom through these streets of Paris. And with this opening, I mean, it's setting up the cathedral itself, but if it's setting up anything, really, it's Frollo, our villain, who we're going to talk about in a bit more depth a little bit later in the episode. But Mike, this must have been what you were talking about when you messaged me like, holy crap, the start of this film, uh, Frollo killing Quasimodo's mum on the steps, he's going to drop a baby in a well, it is all kicking off. It is so dark. Like, it sets its stall, doesn't it? It's literally pre-title card, isn't it? And, yeah. and it's just like, what is happening here? Yeah, you've got infanticide. You've got all kinds of horrible, horrible stuff going on here. In this incredible opening number, like, I do think that maybe the rest of the film doesn't match up to this incredibly powerful opening scene. I think this is as good as the film gets. But it is incredible i think like i love the look of it i love the moments when the um the sort of narrator character is is kind of telling the story with the puppets and the tower and everything but like this whole backstory of yeah frollo killing quasimodo's mother and then about to chuck the baby down the well and yeah all of this stuff is like how am i seeing this in a 90s disney film this is absolutely insane yeah i i loved it (laughs) (laughs) five stars thumbs up mike munzer the evolution of horror yeah 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 it's really haunting music as well isn't it it is just like there's something really haunting you know all the way through the film they have this kind of like monastic choir these kind of monks and latin and all of that kind of thing and i've always found all of that stuff kind of spooky anyway right but um yeah it's it's so powerful that music in the opening scene you get all the way through in every scene almost and certainly in every song even the happy ones like topsy-turvy but especially in bells of notre dame you get this motif of and then, <laughs> I've seen this film once and then it's stuck in my head forever. And then halfway through the movie, we finally get the song that is that song, which is Hellfire, which yes. uses the motif as its chorus. And we'll talk about, boy, will we talk about Hellfire when we get to it. But the fact that it's that motif that is the movie at its absolute darkest, which is woven so thoroughly through every other sequence in the film, says a lot about how I think especially Mencken was like setting out his store like this is serious business this is dark stuff it's interesting as well like the Mencken music is it reminds me I don't know if this is like a Victor Hugo thing but it reminds me of Les Mis music as well like there's something about it it's got that same that drama and that power that a lot of the Les Mis musical has this reminds me of that in a weird way as well yeah and it's just it's really phenomenal stuff it's one of those things where you go, does it like sound French somehow? But at the same yeah. time, if you ask me to think of music that sounds French, I would think of accordions and right, that is yeah. French music right there, <laughs> authentic, straight from the nation itself. But yeah, you're right. Something about <laughs> the music here maybe is that 
Latin European influence coming through? Is it got a basis in church music? It's the organs, it's the Latin choir. Yeah, it does kind of sound French in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. Well, there's hymns woven into it as well as we go like Hellfire again, especially there's like actual hymns being drawn on for the melody and some of the lyrics. I mean, I'm going to say this now. This is top five Disney scores. I think maybe... Maybe best Alan Menken score. It's this or Beauty and the Beast for Alan Menken. And they're both top five overall. And then for me, I would say Jungle Book, Lion King, Sleep and Beauty. And, and this and Beauty and the Beast. In no particular order. I think that's my top five. I worked it out. But this is so powerful and frightening and, and imposing. All these adjectives I'm going to be using all the way through the episode. But it is exactly what the movie is. And it has this scope and this grandeur that you need to represent both Notre Dame and also the, the melodrama of this story. And as Mike set up, this is all pre-title card. And that is something that I think Disney is really honing in on in this era. Like an impactful title card moment because we discussed a couple of episodes ago on the lion king having the oh. circle of life and the way that that just cuts out cuts to black boom the lion king super mm. impactful the same with pocahontas how we get through the storm after all the stuff back in london and they head through the raging storm and they reach the new world and then through the mist we have the title of pocahontas come up this as you say, it's the build-up of the music. It is the clanging of the bells. It's the oh, 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 and you have that shot of just the bells swinging and the title comes up, fills the screen, and it's a real like sit down because we're gonna blow your mind for the next ninety minutes. That is the vibe that they are putting across with that title sequence. Yeah, and also it sets up Frollo really more than it sets up Quasimodo. I mean, it almost feels like this is Frollo's film more than Quasimodo's at times. You know, he has so much of this film, doesn't he? And I don't know what you guys think, but I can't think of a more frightening evil Disney villain as well than Frollo you know like he is just pure evil from beginning to end isn't he yeah. he's absolutely terrifying because he's a normal guy and I think is he, obviously though? people like that well <laughs> no he's but he's a human he's a human man right. he doesn't have yeah. any magical powers he's not normal men he's not innocent men that is not Frollo <laughs> In the novel, he is an alchemist, which feels very Disney, and that's mm. something they've removed from this to simplify it, I think. He is just an awful, villainous, wretched person who has prejudices and motives and methods which are really familiar to us. Actually, we're talking about how the, the home invasion horror is one of the most effective genres of horror because... It's something that people can relate to more, right, than than just yeah. monsters and slashes and things. Like it's something that could happen to any of us. And when you think of villains in the Disney canon who come close to Frollo, the only other one that we've met so far, I think, is the stepmother from Cinderella. Mm. Even though she came out a few years before Maleficent has the same voice actor, Maleficent's a much more iconic character. When you watch Cinderella, that stepmother, Lady Tremaine, is chilling. And the way she speaks and moves and some of the shots that we get of her peering through the darkness at Cinderella absolutely cut to the bone. She feels like a real person who exists. It's not Ursula, it's not magic. And she's also not camp and fun. And, and all of that applies to Frollo as well. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. There's no humour to Frollo, right? Like, yeah. you know, Scar is funny and Ursula's funny. And, you know, even Jafar, like these other villains that we had seen up until this point, especially in the 90s, they have this kind of camp charisma. And the, yeah. Frollo doesn't really seem to have any of that either, does he? You know, he's just hideous. And I do want to say, 
I think that camp charisma is kind of sequestered off into a different character in this. I think, in many ways, the classic Disney villain role is being played by Clopan, the narrator, who mm. is low-key one of my favourite characters in the movie. <laughs> That's the thing I couldn't stop thinking about all the way through, is like, oh, this is like a puppeteer on the street talking to some kids? Yeah. <laughs> we occasionally get flashes back to him, and it's like, oh, he's there with his little puppet show doing his thing, and the kids are like, ooh. <laughs> I'm really deeply into Clopan. I think he's fascinating as a figure. He's, he's completely different from the analogous character in the novel, really. And he reminds me of two of my favourite characters in theatre, which is uh, Puck from Midsummer Night's Dream and the MC from Cabaret. And I think he plays yes. a really similar role. Like, he is this sort of camp, queer-coded narrator figure who is presenting us this story is morally ambiguous, and he's ambiguous, I would say, in terms of his sexuality, and he has this... There is an ambiguity in terms of his relationship to the fiction, because like Puck and like the MC, he is both character and narrator. He, like, speaks through the diegesis of the story to the audience. And the fact that he's, like, associated with the carnival, which we'll get to later in this idea of, like, inversion and subversion, I just think aligns him with those fantastic trickster characters that I love. And I think he's really magnetic as a presence, maybe not necessarily realised insofar as he could be. Not all of those songs that he gets to perform are perfect. I mean, not compared to Cabaret, if, that, if that's our bar. Yeah, I really love Clopin. I just wanted to get a mention in there because I can see some of those other Hunchback and Notre Dame podcasts out there just glossing over this guy. But to <laughs> me, he is like central to the to the whole enterprise. He sings more songs than any other character. He was the most prominent character in the marketing in the 90s mm. as well because he looks fun. He's like, this, he's like this jester guy. He's a harlequin. The main poster for the movie was a big picture of Clopin and really? the tagline... <laughs> Come join the party. <laughs> wow. Because they didn't know what else to do. They didn't know how else to market this movie. Not come see the nightmares. Um, <laughs> come question your relationship with God and man. No, it's, it's come join the party. And the trailers were all Clopin singing, Hey, topsy-turvy, topsy-turvy. <laughs> wow. Oh, I love it. There's going to be generations of kids who came for the Jester movie, came for the puppeteer <laughs> of Notre Dame, and then they were like, oh, sweet God, what am I watching? <laughs> so true. Well, I'm torn because, as you've rightly pointed out, the introductory sequence here kind of sets up Frollo as pretty much our major character of this story, and I kind of just want to delve into the Frollo chat, but we do also have to talk about Quasimodo, which path do we choose at this point are we going uh should we get the quasimodo stuff is it harsh to say out of the way maybe that's harsh to say let's do some quasimodo i think that would be triggering for someone who's been locked in a bell tower their entire life (laughs) oh god let's not use the phrase out of the way Oh, I'm sorry, Quasimodo, I didn't mean it. But the thing that I was impressed with, with this character, for one thing, Sam, I think we're going to end up discussing how this film, because it's kind of a Victor Hugo adaptation, but it's also a 90s Disney movie, it's kind of doing some 90s Disney movie things, but also it sits quite apart from some of the other films. And I think the overall, like hero, bad guy, love interest dynamic feels quite different in this movie compared to Aladdin and Pocahontas and The Lion King and it's just so much Mm. less clear cut what that dynamic is. And among this kind of knotty complex tangle of different relationships and 
bigotries and biases and beliefs and all of these things that are kind of ensnaring these characters and tying them together and pulling them apart. In the middle of it all, Quasimodo himself has a lot of personality, I think, in the way that he is designed, the way that he's animated, how expressive he is facially, how he kind of emotes to the audience, how he moves, how he interacts with Notre Dame itself, how he kind of resides above the story but is the center of the story as well. He is an interesting character. Yes, Frollo is the guy that we really want to talk about, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with Quasimodo and I did feel drawn to him from this initial viewing. I thought he was like an interesting, sympathetic character who had a lot going for him in a way that some Disney main characters tend to be quite bland. Yeah, I completely agree. I like him. You know, I think he's not as interesting as Frollo in this film in a way and I but I do like this kind of slightly different dynamic like you said this sort of love triangle between him and Esmeralda and Phoebus right and you don't quite know where that's going necessarily at least that felt a bit different to some of the stuff that we'd had previously like you said but he's great I think he's I like the physicality of him I love the way that he swings and climbs and and jumps and you know and that sort of comes into it uh, particularly in the final act um, uh, you know that kind of cool introduction again of him where you've got the puppeteer kind of doing the Quasimodo puppet and then it kind of turns into this sort of silhouette almost again this kind of like gothic almost expressionist kind of silhouette of this guy crawling up the bell tower and ringing the bells it's great I, I love the design I love the way that because it's the 90s and he is technically our hero he's got kind of 90s curtains as well just so you know <laughs> that he's technically still a nice guy he needs the hair of Ben from A1 yeah exactly exactly so so even though he's supposed to be this kind of like quote-unquote monster he's still got lovely hair and that's how you know you can love him and trust him right but he's great i think he's really good he's got some great moments and and he is sympathetic and also i don't know my heart goes out to him obviously but the moments as well with the gargoyles i think are really interesting too because maybe we need to talk about the gargoyles at some point but like are they real or are they in his head right and that kind of adds an extra sad dimension for me to Quasimodo as well because I'm like oh he's so lonely and I and actually weirdly even though they give him these three wacky sidekick friends to talk to I can't help but think they're not really there they're in his head and that kind of makes the whole thing even darker and sadder for me in a way so everything about Quasimodo and his surroundings really work I think in adding to the kind of tragedy and sympathy of that character I hate to say it because it really bums me out but I think you might be right about the gargoyles not really being alive even though there is magic in this movie yeah I need to believe that the gargoyles are real because (laughs) otherwise it is just too upsetting but I think those moments where they turn back to stone in front of his eyes or sometimes when another character enters the scene suddenly the gargoyles are stone and it, you either mm-hmm. have to believe it's a Toy Story situation where it's like, ah, Andy's mum enters the room, toys flop to the floor. Or they just straight up aren't alive and he's projecting all these personalities onto them. Although, Sam, I realise we're early in the discussion, but we're on the gargoyles, so I am going to potentially Whoa. toot a little Disney Versity Legends horn right here because there was Whoa. one gargoyle in particular who I just got great vibes from front to back again need to believe that these characters are real because the vibe <laughs> coming off not victor not hugo see what they did there mm. but laverne laverne the gargoyle just was yes. a good vibes presence front to back didn't know anything about this character immediately was excited whenever they were doing anything in the scene 
you're looking at me like I'm nuts. <laughs> I mean, Laverne is... Okay, I guess we're talking about the gargoyles. So <laughs> Just to tee this up for Mike, we love random Disney characters that, who never get spoken about half the time. They don't even have names. These yeah, yeah. just unspoken legends who brighten up these films and don't get their time in the sun. And we give them their time in the sun with the status as a Disneyversity legend. I think Laverne has got the chops. Laverne, yeah, I guess she's the <laughs> best gargoyle in the trio of gargoyles in this movie. <laughs> correct, correct. Not the best gargoyle in any Disney product that would go to the cast of the action cartoon series Gargoyles. Like Goliath, of course, voiced by Keith David being their leader. But I guess she is the best of these. She has that extra bit of personality to her, like cranky old woman, which isn't quite as irritating as the personality of George Costanza from Seinfeld, which yeah. the thought was enough to carry. It's George from Seinfeld without any kind of inhibitions. It's just completely <laughs> obnoxious. That would be Hugo. And Victor, I guess, is supposed to be the stuffy one, but he's just a little bit dull. So, yeah, Laverne, fine. She's like the motherly figure to Quasi. She gets the last line of the movie. I think my problem with Laverne is I'm kind of bit there because... The movie ends with this huge swell of a reprise of the Bells of Notre Dame, and then, just as we're about to hear that final motif for the last time, Laverne chips in, getting angry at some seagulls, saying, Don't you ever migrate! (laughs) And it's like, that's just completely a synopsis of all of the torn problems that plague this movie, so... No, I love it. I don't want to hate on Laverne. Mike has the deciding factor. What's your take on Laverne? (laughs) Do you remember Laverne? Love Laverne, uh, (laughs) played by the amazing Mary Wicks. This was her last role. In fact, I think the film came out after she had passed away. But I know her really well because I was such a big fan of the Sister Act films. And she's the cranky Mm. old nun in the the two Sister Act films, Sister Mary Lazarus. And she was so funny in that as well. Basically playing the same role in this, the kind of cranky old one who's actually quite lovable but always a bit cross about something. Uh, I'm I'm into it. I'm a fan of her. I, I agree she's the best gargoyle, that's for sure. Well... I'm going to take two against three as a victory for a Disneyversity legend. Yeah, fine. <laughs> I know I'm going to get tweets about this is the thing. Whenever this happens, I'm yeah. going to get Laverne Twitter coming up my ass after yes. this. Come on, Laverne Twitter, come at me. <laughs> Officially a Disneyversity legend. Anyway, okay, that's the Gargoyles covered up. By the way, where did they get the name Laverne? I get the Victor Hugo thing. Well, Why Laverne? I have tried to look this up, and the best that I can find from what I don't think is the most reputable source, it's a Apparently it's named after one of the Andrews sisters, which has nothing to do with anything. But apparently one of the directors was just like, ah, let's look at the name of the Andrews sisters. I guess it's Laverne. I trust the source that I got this from in general, but there's just not enough detail to that story to make it check out for me. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, I guess we should talk about the Gargoyles while we're on the Gargoyles, because I'm the opposite of Ben. I want to believe they're in Quasi's head. Oh, what? No. Because that makes it work. This is a dark movie, and the Gargoyles are the epitome of the torn problems with it. It was a a clumsy attempt to bring any kind of lightness or child-friendliness to this film. Let's put the Gargoyles in, and they don't fit with anything around them. Their song doesn't fit with the rest of the soundtrack. To me, they don't work. Like, we first meet Hugo saying the line pour the wine and cut the cheese and then he does a big armpit fart and I don't even think a gargoyle can do an armpit fart how would that even work they're made of stone but I think they work as what Mike's suggesting like a literalization of his thought process like angels and devils on his shoulder because in that way even 
an obnoxious character like Hugo feels worth having around because he's like quite convincing as a voice of his desires and actually they do break down quite well into like Freud's conception of the three competing parts of the psyche because for Freud you had the id which is like instinctive and pleasure oriented which is Hugo you've got the superego which is like critical and moral I guess a bit like neurotic which is Victor and then you've got like the realist and the mediator which is the ego who kind of keeps them in check and, and balances the two and that is Laverne and I've completely butchered that from a psychoanalysis point of view I'm sure but I do think you can slot those characters into it and in that way it makes sense and in the novel they got this idea from passages in the novel where it's like oh Quasi was talking to the gargoyles but of course the gargoyles don't respond right so I think the original idea to me was that they are meant to be in his head but we do get bits like the goat Jolly can see Hugo at one point and they do participate in the final battle. They throw oil on the enemies or send birds to attack them or whatever it is. They make pop culture references. Fly my pretties fly and all that. One of them chews up some gravel and fires it out of their mouth like a machine gun. I, that was in yes. my notes because I was like, that's that's pretty cool. That's good. That's very like Roadrunner style Chuck Jones humor. So I, I I think they work better in his head, and I wish they'd followed through on it a little bit more, and they hadn't had these interactions. Uh, yeah, I sort of agree. I think I kind of wanted to believe that they were in his head, and and when the goat interacts with them, I kind of wrote that off as like. That's kind of like how Brian is the only one that can speak to Stewie in Family Guy, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it's real, you know? (laughs) (laughs) My one plus for Hugo is that he has the gonzo thing of being like, randomly really attracted to a farm animal (laughs) i think we're talking about gonzo we did an episode of mother christmas carol and like we love how gonzo is just randy for chickens all day long and hugo is apparently really into this goat (laughs) he's like making goo goo eyes at the goat that's funny yeah that's comedy to me well, anyway, these characters, I think, do an interesting job, not only of keeping the kids amused and slightly less traumatised than they would be, as you say, but also of bolstering Quasimodo's character and his loneliness and his isolation. We do, I think, have to talk about Quasimodo as a character who is differently abled and what that means for this story, because that is obviously drawn directly from the Victor Hugo novel, Uh, which was written a couple of hundred years ago. But as much as the film, from a 90s perspective, makes Quasimodo a very sympathetic character, makes him very likeable and very empathetic, and you're on his side and you see his acts of heroism, the film is also having to depict the world being against him. You think of the Festival of Fools and the tomatoes start flying and it's an upsetting thing it engenders sympathy for Quasimodo to see the way that he is treated by people to even see the way that his name was given to him as like half formed is messed up there's nothing you can do with that inherently with this text but it is something that it just comes into play as you watch the movie these days that it is probably not great as a piece of representation for people with disabilities, as much as he has a central and heroic role, so much of this is about him being othered by the world and having to fight for the right to be seen as like a person, as as a hero, and to be welcomed into this society. It's a it's a difficult thing to watch. 
I don't know if there's any literature on that side of things, Sam. Yeah, I've been reading around the issue and I wanted a quote from Martin Norden, who's an academic in the field of disability studies, who wrote a chapter about this for a book called Diversity in Disney. And he says that these filmmakers fell back on one of the most enduring beliefs about good people with disabilities, good being in quotes, that they possess an inner beauty that compensates for their less than perfect exteriors. And he says that films guided by this perspective package the other character's eventual recognition of that inner beauty as like a facile feel-good moment during the win and moments of the narrative, which is exactly what happens in this movie. Like seconds before the end of the film, everyone's got him on their shoulders. And up, up to that point, it's just abuse nonstop. And Norden writes that these moments do little to ameliorate the damaging message often conveyed throughout the rest of the story that people with disabilities are freakish, even animalistic entities that deserve to be shunned, feared or humiliated. And, and that's kind of what you're getting at, I think, Ben, because even things about Quasimodo in this movie that are maybe depicted as a positive also fall into like different kinds of stereotypes as well. So... Mike, you were talking before about the agility of the character, which is spectacular to watch. It makes him a great animated character, the fact that he can swing around these buildings like this. And you see some brilliant character animation from uh, from James Baxter in those scenes. But then, you know, it is kind of like a bestial, like animalistic yeah. agility that he has. And he has like this superhuman strength as well when he, he breaks free of his chains at one point. And it plays into this whole history of the character because... I think part of the reason why Quasimodo is the central figure has become over time the central figure in this story, which originally, you know, spent as much time with Esmeralda and Frollo and everybody else as Quasi, is because in cinema, his disability offers opportunity for spectacle. So in those older, more horror-oriented films that have especially the Lon Chaney one where this is a guy who is known for his capability to create and perform under monster makeup the disability becomes the spectacle that's what people go to see that's what's on the post it's like you are going to get to see the man with a thousand faces as his latest hideous creation and that was true even in like theatrical productions that predate cinema of this story Quasimodo has become centralized because he offers this opportunity for spectacle and it's like so what are we actually being asked to watch and look at and enjoy here it, it's a conflict for us as viewers because it is it's, it's fantastic animation but um it's putting forward other stereotypes of the differently abled in ways that i think ultimately don't do the character or the film any favors in terms of its like social messaging right every thing that we get at the end is undercut by what we've already seen up to that point i i would say in my opinion and i'm sure people have watched this movie and come away having internalized that message of let's treat people who look and act differently to us equally because they're probably all good underneath but i think just as many people will have had any deep-rooted prejudices that they had about differently able people and people with disfigurements and everything else reinforced by this. Yeah, it is a tangled web to kind of wade through. And it's something where it's so inherent to the story, to the characterization. Like, there is very strong characterization with our central pairing here, especially Quasimodo and Frollo. I imagine in the book even more so with Esmeralda and Phoebus as well. 
I think it's just that lack of a wider representation overall that if this was like a drop in the ocean of other much more benevolent depictions of people and non-patronizing I think there's an element of patronization here as well which is yeah. uh, upsetting to see even when it's trying to do the right thing it's coming across in a sort of patronizing way that song that's like here's to the outcasts or something and it's like oh I know what you're trying to do here but it's coming off in a weird way and he's childlike as well he's getting taught his ABCs mm. at the start of the movie and yes he's being cooped up in a cathedral his whole life but he is meant to be like 20 years old but that side of things where you have this character who has been set away from the world does give us some incredible moments in this movie we have to talk about the out there sequence because it is amazing and sam i'd never seen this film before knew very little about even this story really i didn't massively know what this film was about but the thing that i realized as i was watching it that i knew (laughs) was a bit of the song out there because of a tiktok sound (laughs) Um, (laughs) so there is a major sound it recurs a lot on my tiktok for you page which is just the algorithm going hey you're gonna like this oh i've seen all the stuff that you've watched here watch more of this watch more of that there is a song where somebody some presumably gen z person has taken the like crescendo of out there when he's singing off the side of notre dame and he's going out there and instead of it going it goes into the song from how to train your dragon <laughs> it goes do 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 and so i was watching this film like wait this is that tiktok sound and it's but it's also how to train your dragon that's the cultural footprint of this song in 2023 is a tiktok sound mashed up with how to train your dragon well do you know what it reminds me of when i watched it It, i I so straight away associate it with up there from south park bigger longer uncut which is satan's (laughs) song that he sings which maybe it might be almost a direct reference to this because right. they're so similar, but you know, Satan wants to be free from hell and go and live with all of the people on earth. And he sings that whole song where he's like, up there. And I didn't realize until I rewatched Notre Dame, I was like, oh, these are so, so similar <laughs> as well. Even the titles almost sound identical as well, which I thought was funny. There's something in the water in the late 90s. Yeah, it was a big thing. Well, thanks to our TikTok correspondent, Ben <laughs> Travers, <laughs> just had to sit mouth agape. That must be what it's like for you when I'm talking about Bionicles or something, Ben, or the, or the lore of Beast Wars. <laughs> That's like 90% of our conversations that aren't about Disney. <laughs> yeah, I, I have nothing to contribute, but I'm glad he's doing it. <laughs> but, but this sequence has some spectacular animation in it. I mean, the way that Victor Hugo would love it, because the way it's showing off Notre Dame itself right. and centering that mm. in the song, it's... Quasimodo's emotions, but it's spectacle of the cathedral itself. And that shot, that kind of 3D shot as he's sliding down a pipe or something. There's like a trench with some water. He's sliding down. I don't know what is actually happening there, but it looks amazing. It's just the perfect use of CGI in a 2D animated movie because we've seen some good examples and some bad examples of that since Disney started doing it. And here because it's like this inorganic structure which is meant to stand out. So it, it's hard geometry. It's not an animal that's moving around or anything like that. It's, it's this structure that they can construct in 3D software and then have the 2D characters swing around and interact with it. And there's so many amazing shots in this song and in the sanctuary sequence when 
Quasimodo saves Esmeralda as well. You get these amazing pans. Mm. This is what 3D animation in 2D films should be for. Yes, it stands out. Yes, it doesn't look necessarily like it's coming from this exact same world as, as the characters, but it should stand out because it's meant to be monumental and it's meant to make us gasp. And I kind of think it does. Yeah, and like that's one of the other great things about this film, right? It's such a sense of place, and I, you know, like I've I've not read the book, but like you said, you know, the fact that the book spends so long just describing Notre Dame, and and there are moments like this, right, where the film does that too, you know, like I I love these kind of sweeping shots of the city and the streets, and and yeah. then this stuff where we're really kind of exploring and appreciating the architecture of Notre Dame itself is is perfect, isn't it? Yeah, it's really really beautiful stuff. So I do want to say if that's one of the best examples of 3D animation in a 2D Disney movie, I'm not sure how I feel about the other major 3D aspect of this film. I want to know if you guys even noticed this and if you did, what you thought about it. Did you look very closely at the big crowd scenes in this and all of the the characters who populate them? Because this movie features some of the most ambitious crowd scenes in any 2D animated film. The thing that I noticed, and it was more towards the end of the film, is when they're populating some of these areas with characters that they kind of walk a bit like The Sims they're kind of on paths and they are just kind of going through the motions of wandering around, which I also noticed when I rewatched Titanic recently. There's one shot in particular of Titanic, which for the most part stands up so well. It holds up brilliantly. And it's this massive sweeping shot of the ship where you're really supposed to be looking at the ship itself. But if you look at the people on the ship, they're all kind of going like video game characters. Is is that what you're getting at here, Sam? It is kind of Sims-esque, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. All of the crowd characters in this film are 3D. And once you know and you're looking for it, I found it really freaky. Because <laughs> basically what they did was they created six digital character models and assigned them one of 72 actions randomly. So they can clap, or they can wave, or they can jump, and there's only like six different character bodies that they can randomly generate different clothes for, and then they just slap them into all of these crowd scenes. And if you're not looking at them, it works, because the world feels densely populated, which is the idea. But when you start staring at them, like especially in that carnival sequence, where the 2D characters in the foreground are getting up to all sorts of really kinetic animated hijinks, and then the background you've just got, it's hard for me to get this across with words. I'm like kind of just really robotically like, clapping. slow, robotic, <laughs> yeah, back and forth clapping and gyrating, and their faces are, are kind of really freaky as well. Yeah, don't look too much like that's one of the most nightmarish things in the film for me <laughs> was this these huge swerves of robots in the crowd, canny Paris. <laughs> but that sequence is significant, isn't it? Because uh, not only is it an injection of energy into this film, I think there is a constant sense of like, okay, it's very dark, let's do some fun stuff now. I mean, that sequence does get dark because then the yeah. crowd turns on Quasimodo. But it, yeah, it gives you some energy, it gives you some gestury times in the middle of the square. It also really properly introduces Esmeralda, or is the moment that Esmeralda meets Quasimodo, which is pretty significant. What do we make of Esmeralda? Because... Again, if we're talking about some of the serious stuff we have to get into with this story, with this episode, which is the way that it presents Romani people, I mean, there is so much you could get into here and the the language that it uses and how it weaves that into the story and what Frollo's aims are. I think we should just say up, up top that like there is a huge amount of 
racism out there against Romani people, it's probably something that's not spoken about as widely as other kind of areas of discrimination. And that absolutely won't have been part of the consideration of this film, I'm sure, in the way that they display these characters and these people. So I think we need to kind of mention that up top. Esmeralda is romanticized and is kind of othered in that sense in her status as a Romani woman at the same time she does have that like 90s Disney woman thing going on in that she probably has the most like action-packed role for a woman in any Mm. of these films to date she is very competent and capable and kind of in some ways acts more like a more recent Disney princess-esque character in that like action-packed, you think of Moana and even the sisters in Frozen and Raya and The Last Dragon, you know, these kind of heroic action women. At the same time, she is very overtly sexualized. It's a crazy, crazy mix going on all in this one character. What do we make of Esmeralda? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's a difficult mix, isn't it? Because I think, again, like in that 90s way, I think the film thinks it's being, I don't know, kind of progressive or whatever in, in, in the way that the Romani people are treated in this film by the villains like Frollo or whatever in a way that is like, well, this is bad to have this perspective, right? But then there are things about Esmeralda, the magic tricks and like these sorts of things and the way in which she's sort of sexualized as well is very weird. And there is a sort of weird sexual desire that Frollo has for her as well. So I guess it kind of plays into the story and, you know, the villain's kind of evil intentions. But some of it does feel a little bit uncomfortable, I think, in the way that she's portrayed. Having said that, like you said, Ben, she's also really cool and really kick-ass and she's a joy to watch as a character, I think. You know, like, she is way more interesting than Phoebus. She's in some ways got more going for her than Quasimodo does in terms of just being like a fun, charismatic character. She is up there with Frollo for me as the the most kind of interesting and entertaining and charismatic character in this film. So it's a kind of mixed bag, isn't it? It is. It's a tricky one. And it, I think it becomes more problematic for me when you put it in that context. Because yeah, if you, if you watch her in this movie, it's like, oh yeah, she's the coolest character in the film. She gets the best action scene. She's got like a, a real kind of attitude, which feels very stereotypically 90s. But yes, I think she is taking it a step further in terms of her agency and in terms of her attitude than those other characters. Like she's more prominent in this movie than, than Jasmine is and Aladdin, I think, and has more to do and more control over her own fate. But when you put it in the context of what else has been going on, like for example, Aladdin all the characters were voiced by white actors and, and they were criticised for that, rightfully so. So in Pocahontas, they made a real effort to get indigenous actors to play those characters. And in this, we've got Demi Moore, who is not Romani. And there's interviews with her saying, like, and people have written this elsewhere, saying, oh, that the character was, like, partly based on, on Demi Moore. And, oh, it kind of looks, you not think it kind of looks like Demi Moore. It's like, no, not really. She's <laughs> several shades darker. Demi Moore, by the way, highest paid voice actor of all time when this movie was made. Really? One million dollars to be wow. Esmeralda. A million dollars. A million dollars. But so in that context, this is a clear step back. Like, oh yeah, you don't care about whatever criticism might arise or whatever harm you might be doing or whoever you might be denying opportunities to when you cast this character. But you did care when it came to Pocahontas. So it's that sense that, yeah, racism against Romney people in a lot of ways, I think still today, as evidenced by a certain Jimmy Carr joke that was doing the rounds a few months ago, is seen as 
less serious, as more admissible than racism towards other ethnicities. So you've got that. And then you've got the fact that, yes, she is sexualized. There's a trend here where the characters, the Disney quote-unquote princesses, because Esmeralda has obviously never really been part of that brand, but the, the Disney women of this era who show the more skin who, at least certainly in the reception of these movies, are most sexualized, and you see this in all the reviews of these films, objectifying these women, are the women of colour. It's Jasmine, it's Pocahontas, it's Esmeralda. They look and behave quite differently to the white characters like Ariel and Belle. So, yeah, when you place it in this context, you can see patterns start to emerge that do become quite troubling. And as well... A lot of this is stuff that they've done to Esmeralda. The Esmeralda in the book is actually more like a kind of typical classic Disney princess. She's more of an innocent. She's younger, much as Pocahontas was in real life. She's 16, and this she's very much an adult. And I think partly they've done that because they want to make her more of a princess with an attitude or a heroine with an attitude, and partly they've aged her up because if all of the adult male characters are going to be lusting after her in this movie, even if one of them is supposed to be a villain, we need to make her an adult, but then maybe we also seemingly need to make her a sexual figure in a way that the Esmeralda of the novel isn't really. Let's make her behave in a more overtly sexual way in order to kind of legitimise the way that these adult men objectify her in the movie, even though one of them's supposed to be a villain. So, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff going on with that character, and yet, strong female role, lots of agency within the story. Swings and roundabouts, but there's there's lots of stuff in this film that I don't think Disney would, would try and get away with today, with regards to that character. One of the most baffling things with Esmeralda, as Mike correctly says, one of the most interesting and charismatic characters in the film, she ends up with Phoebus, who is the most boring dude. I don't even know where to begin with Phoebus, because what is there to say? He's He's got a beard? And that's, yeah, you know... He's... he's... <laughs> He's just cookie cutter, isn't he? There's literally like, it's like they needed to still include a love interest, like a more conventionally good looking Disney prince type character. But he's not really our hero because Quasimodo is our hero. So therefore he doesn't really get to do anything fun or interesting, does he? He's just a kind of handsome, I guess, soldier character. And yeah, pretty boring stuff. Pretty boring. I mean, there is a point where later in the story, Esmeralda's been captured, and it's like, oh no, Quasimodo and Phoebus, these two lunkheads are going to have to try and team up to save by far the most capable character in this movie. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> these guys haven't got it. They're not going to do a good job of this. I'm I'm scared. Yeah, I mean, it's Kevin Klein. That goes a long way for me. I like Kevin Klein. He gets a couple of like little kind of sarcastic gags. But yeah, he is the prince character. I think, like... We were talking before about how it feels like this story has been shoehorned a little bit into the Disney formula. And once you take Quasimodo out of it, you've got the formula. You've got the prince and the princess and, and the villain and the sidekick. Quasimodo kind of complicates that narrative, which is one of the ways in which this is like a more interesting movie than a, a lot of those more formulaic ones. But yeah, Phoebus is kind of a symptom of that. And another character that have changed a lot from the book to make him into more of a typical Disney hero, I think. Albeit with that banned Katzenberg facial hair. Before we kind of move on, actually, now that we're in Katzenberg territory, I just wanted to throw out some uh, mad Katzenberg casting choices. Yes. Because it might be the last time we get to do this. Uh, he wanted Cher to play Esmeralda. What? Cher has such Amazing. a distinctive voice that would just add a whole extra tinge to this film of like, 
It's Cher. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry to any Cher fans out there. That was a terrible, terrible Cher voice. But uh, just for effect, that would be a wild version of this film. Quasimodo was about to be Meatloaf. What? Oh my God. What? Brilliant. Why didn't that happen? Yeah, you can see that. Uh, I think his record label wouldn't let him do it. Right. They actually did seem to get quite far in, in negotiations with that. And he also wanted the Gargoyles to be Arsenio Hall, David Letterman, and Jay Leno. He wanted <laughs> the host of every late night talk show together for the first time in this movie as the Gargoyles. See, I was about to say, oh, is that a thing where it's almost like Quasimodo's been cooped up on his own and he's only got the TV for company, so the voices in his head are like TV voices. No, it's just because Katzenberg wants famous people in this movie. He wants a stunt out of this. Yeah. Classic Katzenberg. I love it meatloaf version of hunchback it would that would be such a different version as well because they give him quite a soft voice with the actor they have playing quasimodo here he has like a gentle energy which i think is quite central to the character but you would have had meatloaf singing Mm, it would have been so good give it a bit of that i would do anything for love style ballad you know uh it would be great rewrite a lot of these songs yeah (laughs) to fit that in it needs to wail a bit more can we fit some whales in here (laughs) oh god oh actually on that note i do have one more katzenberg story and this is in the Esmeralda Zone. That song, God Help the Outcast, which isn't the best song in the movie, we're probably not going to spend much more time on it. When Mencken was writing that song, Katzenberg was in the room and he said, this needs to be bigger. And Mencken was like, what do you mean, bigger? <laughs> it just needs to be bigger. So Katzenberg says, okay, you play the song, I'm going to sit down next to you, and every time it needs to be bigger, I'll let you know. So Mencken's just sitting at the piano playing this like tender ballad and Katzenberg sitting next to him, jabbing him in the ribs every few seconds saying, Bigger! Bigger! Oh my... Make it bigger! Oh my god, put some respect on Alan Mencken's name! Come on! <laughs> Show some respect. This feels like a guy who's about to spiral out of a job, right? <laughs> Last day of work energy from Katzenberg right there. Yeah. I think the time has come to circle back to Frollo. My feelings on Frollo are not substantially aired. We, I need more time to process my Frollo feelings because <laughs> when you mentioned his name last time, Sam, and he meant nothing to me, I was picturing some just little odd guy. Oh, maybe he's living in the tower with Quasimodo. He just sounds like a fun little guy who's like around. He's you were picturing Gurgi. I was thinking Gurgi from the Black Cauldron, true TDLF, truly disgusting little freak, a la Gollum or Dobby. That's what I was feeling for Frollo. Hey, it's Frollo, guys. Within two minutes of this film, I was like, oh no, that's not that's not what they're going for with Frollo. Introduced like the Headless Horseman in the Ichabod and Mr. Toad Sleepy Hollow segment, by the way, like riding through Paris on his big black steed mm. through the night in the middle of the dark. Have you seen the Sleepy Hollow Disney version, Mike? I don't think I have. No, I think I need to check this out. We'll do some extracurricular stuff with you on that episode. Yeah. I, mean, I think you'll like it. But Frollo just is a fascinating character and that central dynamic of Quasimodo and Frollo I think is one of the things that so clearly makes this a Trousdale and Wise movie because Beauty and the Beast was so much about that dynamic that dichotomy of masculinity between Gaston and the Beast the guy who physically looks like a beast but inside is a gooey prince the guy on the outside who looks like the big muscular hero guy and inside is a complete wrong'un and 
that's kind of what you get with Quasimodo and Frollo as well. You have these two. It sets up that question from the beginning. It brings it back at the end of like, oh, one's a monster, one's a man. Which, again, if we're talking about patronizing stuff with Quasimodo, yeah, that begins right at the beginning. That general idea of these two characters pitted against each other in this kind of infernal battle that is going to end in one of their deaths feels like it's a Beauty and the Beast thing right from the off. Yeah, he's a terrifying... And, you know, he's got that kind of... It's Tony Jay, isn't it, that voices him? And he, yeah, he's got legend. that kind of Jeremy Irons, Alan Rickman kind of vibe about him, but somehow with even less kind of warmth. <laughs> and <laughs> there's something so cold about him from the very beginning. And like you said, he, you know, he presents as this lawful Christian man, but everything about the way that he is drawn and portrayed and the fire around him and everything else, the way he's lit often from sort of below, it's like he he has risen from the depths of hell itself, right? He is like this monster from hell throughout the entire film. And he's fleeing his own damnation. That's the other thing where he's this like sort of pious guy. Like you said, yeah, it's like he's risen from hell himself. But the thing he's fearing is being dragged back there because he knows he's done heinous stuff. And I mean, his way around that is just like killing a bunch of people and doing more bad stuff. Not the way to go about that, Frollo. That's not going to get you some redemption uh, in this film. He is like a God-fearing man because he knows that he's done terrible things, which is another fascinating Mm. facet of this. It's really satisfying for me because one of the things that really annoys me about contemporary Hollywood is that every villain has to be the hero in their own story, right? And every time you read an interview with like a guy who's playing a Marvel or a DC villain, they're saying like, oh, well, you know, I actually think this guy in his head, from his point of view, he's the good guy in the story. <laughs> it's like, nah, man, Frollo knows. I can't think of many movies like that where like the villain knows exactly what he's doing wrong, but all he can do to try and cover that up is do even worse things. Yeah. Like, it's whole motivation in this. He is a racist. He is prejudiced against the Romani from the start, and he's right from the off telling Phoebus that his plan is to find their hideout and, and kill them all. But what really drives him to commit the most heinous acts in this film, torching those families' houses, is his lust for Esmeralda and his desire to catch her and either, I guess, marry her or kill her. Like, she will be mine or she will burn. He has to square this circle. He has to make what he is feeling right in the eyes of God. And the only way he can think to do that is to commit even worse sins. So you've got these villains who have admirable motivations or goals or believe in the righteousness of what they're doing. But what Frollo as a character has gone for him is that he is not the hero in his own mind. He hates himself. He reviles himself and his motivations for doing what he does. He aspires to the righteousness of a villain like Thanos who thinks he's doing the right thing, but he knows that his motives are impure. And that's what makes him a great villain. We don't support him. It allows him to be morally repugnant. No attempt is made to justify his actions, but the film does explain them in a way which adds nuance without adding moral ambiguity, and that's satisfying as someone who is sick of goody-two-shoes villains like you see in Marvel movies all the time, or modern Disney movies even. And he's such a psychological villain as well. The way he psychologically traps Quasimodo as well as physically trapping him in the tower, but like making him believe, I am the only person who will treat you right. Out there in the world, you will not survive. I am saving you by leaving you in the tower. There's a whole dimension to that where 
that is so messed up as well. It's really complex in terms of the characterization there. A simpler version of this would be, oh, he's just kept him away in the tower. But it's like, no, the mind games that he's adding on top and the way that Quasimodo is so subservient to Frollo and he can't see what Frollo's doing to him. He just he's grown up in it. He has no other conception that Frollo might not have his best interests at heart. It's so distressing. Um, I mean, let's talk about Hellfire because the Hellfire song and the animation in that is incredible. And so much of the gothic energy of this film comes through in the music. There is like constant music in this movie. It's more jam-packed with songs than so many of these other Disney Renaissance movies. It has songs all the way through and a lot of those songs are big Latin chants and ominous uh, harmonies and all of this. And never more so than in Hellfire with all that fire and brimstone energy. It's just an astonishing thing. The Sith cult of Exegol from <laughs> The Rise of Skywalker popping up with their hoods on to chant over Frollo as he's singing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And it, it's so different to your usual cheeky villain song that you get in all the other 90s Disney yeah. movies, right? It is deadly serious, mm-hmm. it's earnest, it's dark. When you actually realise what's really going on here, like you said, this weird nuance of this villain where he's doing unspeakably evil things, he sort of knows he's doing unspeakably evil things. He's sort of this man of faith who is worried he's going to hell, but he is obviously completely immoral at the same time this weird sexual desire he has for somebody and that he's trying to sort of fight slash kind of embrace this sexual desire. All of that is going on in his head and he's sort of singing about it, really, in Hellfire. And it's just like, how is this happening in a Disney movie? It's insane. And, you know, and then it's like you guys said, you know, they added in the character of the kind of the clergyman who is more sort of moral character. But even so, it does feel like it's kind of really laying into this kind of the hypocrisy of, you know, Christianity or the church or whatever in in this character. And again, all of that feels like it's boiled so perfectly into this beautiful, frightening, gothic sequence that is just filled with literal kind of hellish imagery throughout it's yeah it's wonderful we talk a lot about his dark materials on this podcast and i feel like philip pullman would be a big fan (laughs) of victor hugo's interpretation of of frollo and the church in this movie Mm. yeah it's interesting that this song comes as sort of part of a suite because you get quasimodo singing his song heaven's light where he talks about how he feels about Esmeralda and he sees her as like a beacon of light as something that represents I guess all the good that God has brought to the world and then you get this chant from the priests and that is a prayer what they sing it's it's a prayer called the confiture which is a prayer of penitence and that continues to be interpolated throughout hellfire which brings this irony right because this is a prayer which is meant to be one of confession confession is a core tenet of catholicism but here frollo is really refusing to confess because he sings the lyrics it's not my fault i'm not to blame and in between that they slide in the latin from the prayer where they so it's not my fault mea culpa i'm not to blame mea culpa so that the chance that that's latin for it's my fault basically so we see his hypocrisy really literalized through those lyrics in a way that directly invokes Catholicism. And that kind of, like, the sexual element to this feels really alien for a Disney movie. But the religious element does as well, even though they're seen as, like, a kind of conservative, good home American values company. 
they don't talk about religion very much. I think the last time we got a sustained engagement with religion is in Fantasia, in the Ave Maria sequence, which follows Night on Bald Mountain, in, in kind of a reversal of how Hellfire follows Heaven's Light in this film. And actually there's a visual nod to the final shot of Fantasia, the sunrise, in the shot where Quasimodo shows Esmeralda the view of Paris from the top of the cathedral. So I, I think that there's a little nod to the history of Disney's engagement with religion. But that was a very straightforward kind of Walt era, good vanquish and evil narrative. And here the engagement with Christianity and religion as an institution is, as we say, much more nuanced. Before we wrap up, how are we feeling about the music in this movie? Because it's so interesting to me in this era of like Broadway pop hits is what is happening in this Disney renaissance. This film basically has none of that, has very, very little of that. It has, as I said, a lot of songs. It's dense with songs, and the songs themselves are dense with religious imagery and uh, allegories and allusions to things in a way that, as I was watching it, I was fascinated by it. I was like, oh, there are no pop hits here. It has a very operatic tone to it. If anything, it reminded me kind of of Sweeney Todd, just in the tone of those songs. Yeah, but it was something where I thought, Do you know, what? if I spent quite a bit of time listening to this soundtrack, I would probably get well into it and be really caught up in all of the kind of subtle interweaving musical themes and character themes and how that all overlays. I thought it was really impressive, but as it stands now, I could probably pick out a small handful of this vast array of songs because they're just kind of woven through the movie. Do you guys like the music here? What are your overarching thoughts on the songs I think it is a mix of some of the best stuff in any Disney musical, like Hellfire and the opening number particularly, mixed with some of the more forgettable songs of this whole era. Like, I I actually think a lot for me of Quasimodo's numbers are not that great for me. Like, I, I don't know if I would ever just listen to those. But the score generally... I think is just stunning and beautiful and and I love its darkness and its drama it's wonderful and I, you can see that none of these songs would have become these kind of chart toppers in the way that some of the others from this era did right and maybe that's and more part of the reason why this film didn't break through but I think some of the songs in this are some of the best that Disney have ever produced yeah well all of those movies we've talked about how little mermaid and beauty and the beast and those howard ashman films you know, interesting that also, of course, working with Alan Menken, you've got two very different sensibilities there that Ashman brings and that Schwartz brings, because those ones are like big, poppy Broadway musicals. And this is more akin to something like Swingy Todd, where you've got the whole score is filled with these melodies, these motifs that weave through every single song and everything feels more of a piece and I think probably listening to this as a soundtrack album might be a better way to appreciate what's going on musically than watching it with the film even though these sequences especially something like out there are obviously what's going on visually in Hellfire with all of the flames and the your men from um, The Last Jedi pop up don't they the big evil hooded <laughs> red chaps uh, who, who lorded over Frollo it's a big Sith vibe yeah yeah, yeah. so th- these sequences are great but I do I would recommend listening to it as a soundtrack album because I think you might appreciate it in a different way but it, it's not very typically Disney I've just looked it up because I just remembered I had a Disney CD when I was a kid and the track list and went Zero to Hero from Hercules The Bells of Notre Dame Prince Ali <laughs> It's like, what is that? Two big pop bangers, and then in between you've got to hear Clopin tell us the story of murder and infanticide. (laughs) 
Oh, God. For like six minutes. Well, this film begins with a bunch of darkness. It wraps up with a lot of darkness as well. There is a big siege on Notre Dame. They let us think for a long time that Esmeralda has straight up died to the point that Quasimodo pours some water ostensibly into her mouth and it just like runs off her lips because she's not reacting. And we have this big showdown as well between Frollo and Quasimodo, which features, as Mike pointed out, a lot of that spectacular kind of swinging around the edges of Notre Dame. There has this like big level of spectacle to it and the 3D animation that calls right back to the Great Mouse Detective and the gears of Big Ben. It felt like a direct link to me, the way that it then shows you these big 3D shots of the tower of Notre Dame in this finale. And the finale, Frollo messes himself up by going after Quasimodo. He has himself to blame for his own demise with the gargoyle crumbling beneath his fingers. And even though we get that bit of relief that Frollo has gone back to the depths of hell, all the things he was trying to get himself away from in Hellfire, he goes back to the flames at the end of this movie. But the happy ending is Quasimodo being like, yeah, Esmeralda and Phoebus are a thing and but the but the people like me now I can I can be outside I guess that's that's your big ending folks it's still a bit of a bummer it's better than he fares in the novel <laughs> which we'll get oh, no. to but uh yeah I mean they felt more like friends anyway more like a brother sister kind of relationship I thought it's a bit too neat isn't it and it is it's the disney thing like I read it as he's pretty in love with her and then he's very happy to just give them his blessing and, and move on at the end, and it's yeah. fine. And it all happens very quickly. It sort of flips very quickly, I think, just so that they can quickly give us this happy ending. I think it would have been better if he had died at the end, you know, if Quasimodo had died. But, you know, that's just me and my dark black heart. But, you know, uh, I don't think it ever could have worked in the story they set up with him and Esmeralda going off into the sunset together. But I think it feels a bit flat just having him, like you said, just being like, oh, the people like me now and that's it. I would have liked them to have taken a big swing again at a bold, dramatic, dark ending. But I know, obviously, that was probably never going to happen. Do you know what they could have done? If they'd have gone that other direction, they could have had Quasimodo being invited to be the kind of awkward third wheel in that relationship. And he turns around and he says, I would do anything for love, (laughs) but I won't do that. Credits. (laughs) Good. Very well done. Should have listened to Katzenberg. He had the answers all along. (laughs) Okay, it's been heavily alluded to that as much as there's a lot of darkness in this film, it's so much darker in the novel. So let's get into Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the darkest, weirdest, most upsetting stuff that didn't make the movie. Where do we even begin with this one, Sam? Where do you want to start with Discarded for Hunchback of Notre Dame? Or Notre Dame de Paris, whatever it was called. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's impossible to be comprehensive with this, though, because it's it's a very, very long and complicated novel. So major characters are removed. Like, there are segments of this love polygon which are completely dispensed with. So whole major characters, whole plot lines. I don't think I can even begin to explain it all. So I was thinking maybe let's just skip to the end because the end is quite substantially darker than what we get, as you might imagine. And it feels like there's a version 
of the movie that plays out in this way. It feels like they wanted to do this, and it it was one of those things that did just get snatched back from them, and they just weren't allowed. So the crucial difference is that basically everybody dies. Right. So Esmeralda is hanged in this oh, straight up. What? Straight up. Yeah, oh. not burnt. Okay, hanged. Which I I, I don't know. Is, does anyone have a preference? <laughs> I mean, neither of them are good. Presumably, at Frollo's hand. Well, it's. <laughs> Not quite. He's not the Minister of Justice in the novel, like I say, he's the Archdeacon. So he still has the same attitude of she'll be mine or she'll hang. But he tries to save her on multiple occasions up until the point where she finally just outright rejects him and then he goes and and gets the guards and tells them where she is. She's being hanged for the attempted murder of Phoebus. So, see, this is where it gets complicated. Frollo sneaks up on... Phoebus trying to seduce Esmeralda, stabs Phoebus and then legs it. And even Phoebus thinks that it was Esmeralda who did it. Right. So that's what she's getting arrested for. She gets hanged and a distraught Quasimodo chucks Frollo from the top of the cathedral. So okay. it's an outright murder. Great. Yeah. Love that for Quasimodo. Do it. Chuck him off the roof. Good riddance. It's not your wishy-washy classic Disney. He's overreaching in terms of he's, he's, he's coming for the hero, he goes too far, and then he kills himself, which is what happens in all of these movies with Scar and Gaston and all of that. Quasimodo kills Frollo, and then that's kind of the last we see of Quasimodo. It's the last anyone sees of Quasimodo. What happens to him? And then there's an epilogue, right? And we find out that some skellies have been recovered. Some skellies have been recovered in, in the area. So people have, have tracked down um, a kind of pile of corpses, among which you've got Quasi. He's sought out Esmeralda's corpse because his skeleton is Spoon and her skeleton. Ooh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's quite spooky, isn't That's it? Really so he's spooky. like found her body and spooned it. It just cuddled up until they decomposed. Wow. And um, they both turned into a couple of skellies. And then. <laughs> As these skellies are uncovered, yeah. his skelly disintegrates. Oh, really? Yeah. Seems meaningful, doesn't it? I can't quite put my finger on why. <laughs> I study animated films, not classic literature. Wow. Feels loaded with symbolism that I can't quite pass. But yeah, that's how it ends, with two spoon and skellies. Okay, that's a weird ending. <laughs> and again, I just love the fact that this is Victor Hugo's ploy to make people care about Notre Dame again. <laughs> what a wild, wild story. Well, I'm kind of glad they didn't do that. <laughs> I would have wanted to see Frollo get chucked off the roof, though. Like, yeah, that's good. Give Quasimodo that moment, man. Give him another meatloaf song as he does it. Like a bat out of hell. He, like, chucks him down into the flames. Would have been great. How does that feel to you, Mike? Is that a better ending yeah, for the hell movie? Hell yeah. I mean, like, I was saying at the beginning, like, when he's carrying Esmeralda, Quasimodo, and he's climbing up the tower, it feels like King Kong to me. Like, And it yes, feels like that yeah. moment at the end of King Kong, it, he should perish at the end, I think. I think that feels like the fitting end. Tragic end, but a fitting end to that story, you know? Yeah, the King Kong resonance is there. Uh, yeah, we didn't get back to that in there, but that is a real interesting thread when you look at this cinematically and how it fits into the lineage of kind of gothic tales as well. I love when Disney goes gothic. That's the thing I'm learning through this podcast, Sam. Like, this film and Beauty and the Beast, I love when we get into this kind of gothic, spooky territory. Even, like, the end of Sleeping Beauty and the whole battle with Maleficent Dragon and the castle. Yeah, this is a mode of Disney that I'm I'm really into. I like it a lot. Uh, so that's bringing us into the reviews 
What did critics say at the time about this mad, mad movie? Was it a hit after the shaky reviews of Pocahontas? It was mixed, but leaning positive. Roger Ebert loved it. Okay. Uh, He gave it four stars out of four. He said it was the best Disney since Beauty and the Beast. Wow, so he thinks it's better than Lion King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you recall Lion King. I mean, Lion King was more well-received than Hunchback of Notre Dame. Let's not get that twisted. But Lion King was seen by some as a bit of a step down from the previous run back in the day. And some people liked what the weather were going with Hunchback of Notre Dame. Many reviewers were praising the high production values and that imposing score. But generally what's being critiqued is the comedy, uh, which Time said felt like it had been grafted onto an essentially solemn story and that is you know how i see it as well those things just do not feel like they fit there's a way to do the gargoyles that works but it just feels so extraneous the way that they've done it it just feels like it doesn't belong okay so more positive reviews than pocahontas then what about money wise because this is a hard sell for audiences as much as you can put clopan all over the posters it's not necessarily going to reel in the punters did this make a decent amount of money back in the day I mean, they did their best. Their tradition of absurd premieres continued with this, so they booked out Central Park and made 100,000 people come and watch Pocahontas. And this time they did the same thing with the Superdome Stadium in New Orleans. They projected the film on six screens. They got all the stars of the previous Disney Renaissance movies to come and sing the songs. And there was a parade through the French Quarter led by Michael Eisner in a horse-drawn carriage. What? That is wild. Is there video footage of this somewhere? It has to be on YouTube. The entire thing is on YouTube, but it's part of a big, long two-hour TV special, which is the same thing that happened with Pocahontas. And they kind of cut away for the Michael Eisner in a horse-drawn carriage segment, which is unfortunate. (laughs) But we do see a lot of floats and and a lot of Louisiana-based marching bands. So strap in for that. Just a thought. What did France make of this movie? It was generally well-received in France, yeah. Victor Hugo fans and scholars in the Victor Hugo family weren't happy. The Victor Hugo family described the film's marketing campaign as commercial debauchery, and they were furious (laughs) that his name wasn't commercial debauchery, and they were furious that his name wasn't on the poster. (laughs) That was the main thing. It was like, you should put Hugo's name on the poster. But generally, it did quite well in France, actually. Overall... Not the biggest. It did 100 million domestically. It did 325 million worldwide. So less than Pocahontas on both counts. Although it actually did better than Pocahontas outside of North America. Because I, I guess it was like more well-received in Europe. But yeah, the marketing team didn't have any idea what to do with this. It was inevitable, I think, that this was going to become the commercial low point of this era of Disney. Okay, so they've hit a bit of a low. They're going to be bouncing back as we head into the next part of the renaissance. But what did we think of it? Mike, I want to start with you. What are your feelings on this movie overall? What star rating would you give it? And how did you respond to it, watching it afresh for this episode? It's really difficult. I think it is one of the most interesting Disney films in the last 30, 40 years in some ways. It's flawed. It Obviously, it's not as good. It's not as timeless as Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. And it does, and we've been through some of the stuff that is quite 
tricky about it and and problematic about it but there is stuff in this film that is so great so weird ambitious it that feels like more bold than anything disney has done in decades that i sort of love it for that and i think it's such an interestingly flawed movie with moments of absolute mastery and genius um so i'm sort of really kind of on the fence about it, uh, you know, I, I think I would air, if I was to give it a star rating, I would be somewhere between a three and four star. And I think I'd, I think I'd air towards a four star because there are moments of it that I really, that almost take my breath away, you know, in this film. And I, I can't think of many Disney films since that in the last sort of 20, 25 years that have really done that to me. So yeah, I think I, generally I'm really positive on this film. I think it's so interesting and so weird. And uh, yeah, I'd go for four stars. I am in exactly the same boat of there is all this complicated stuff with Esmeralda and Quasimodo and presentation of these characters that is a lot to get into. But the film itself and what the film is doing and how the film is operating is so impressive for so much of its runtime. I think it has some pacing issues. I think it has a few boring songs and it's a little bit longer than some of the other Renaissance movies, and I think it just needs a couple of minutes maybe taken out to just zhuzh it up, power it along a bit. But it's such a memorable film. I think when I look back, Sam, on us doing this era of the podcast, I think something that will stand out is, oh, God, yeah, watching Hunchback and going like, whoa, what is this movie? Some of the crazy stuff, the orchestral score and the Latin choirs and all the big shots of Notre Dame and Frollo. Not going to forget Frollo anytime soon. There's a lot in this that I think I'm going to hold on to, but I can see the flaws in the film itself, let alone the problematic territory that it gets into. So I'm about a three and a half verging on a four as well. Absolutely bang on with Mike. What about you, Sam? Yeah, I'm in a similar place. I will say it shot up my rankings on this watch. I like it more now than I did before I rewatched it. And I think reading about it has helped as well. And looking at it in a lot more detail than I had in the past. Incredible character animation in this, which I haven't really talked about. We've been talking a lot about the environments and stuff. James Baxter's work on Quasimodo is amazing. I really wanted to shout out Kathy Zelensky, who animated Frollo. And she was only the second female supervising animator on a Disney movie. The first being Ellen Woodbury, who did Zazu in The Lion King. And I think her work on Frollo feels so intimate and so observed. I think it's actually quite interesting and significant that a woman is being given the job of animating what is effectively like a sexual predator. And it feels like a version of that character from a woman's perspective. There's moments like when he sniffs Esmeralda's hair yes. in the church, when he's like, that's the moment where his lust kind of really comes through that feels like a feminine perspective is coming across of like, this is someone who is at least aware of the kind of experiences that women have when dealing with men in these kind of positions of power and has put that into animating this absolute ghoul. So yeah, there's just really strong work in every single facet of the film, but just those tonal issues hold it back. It feels like there's a great film here waiting to be excavated, and maybe some of the uh, spin-offs managed to do that. Yeah, I, th- I think three and a half for me is where I've landed. Okay, well let's get into The Lasting Legacy then. A Disney movie is never just a Disney movie, and in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character. So Sam, I guess we'll start talking about the parks and the Hellfire area of the parks where you can go and meet Frollo and chuck people off the roof. Surely they've made that at some Disneyland park somewhere, right? 
I genuinely think Frollo is probably the most common hunchback character to meet in the parks. You can meet Frollo at Disneyland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's usually, if not always, the only Frollos I've ever seen have been wearing big rubber Frollo masks no. instead of just like, let's cast an old dude who kind of looks like <laughs> <Yeah>. Frollo. <laughs> Given It's like dudes in these big masks. But because Hunchback is kind of a, a forgotten movie and no one really cares about meeting these characters, like kids don't care... The character you see most often in Frollo, because whenever they do a big Disney villain parade, like at Halloween, all the villains come out, and Frollo is is like one of them. He's just in the background there with with all the other guys, with like Hades and the Queen and and people like that. So yeah, there's a few things in the parks. Uh, there's a few musical stage shows have been put on here and there. The place I really want to visit is the restaurant in Hong Kong Disneyland called Clopan's Festival of Foods. Oh, that sounds Ooh. jolly. See what they did there. Presumably all the staff are dressed as jesters and they throw tomatoes at you? (laughs) It's all very tomato-based food. Yeah, so cinematically, there is, of course, and I'm I'm using cinematically extremely loosely, The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2. Have have any of us seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2? Hell no. Just myself, then. So, I mean, The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2... What an unbelievably offensive sequence of words. Like, if you're a Hugo guy, right? If you if you have any kind of sense of the import of this story and how it goes down in the novel, the hunchback of Notre Dame 2 just makes no sense whatsoever. Too hunchback, too damn. <laughs> oh, God. All the cast are back. Demi Moore's back. Kevin Klein's back. Really? Tom Hulse is back. Wow. I guess none of them are exactly superstars. It feels like all of their careers peaked around the time of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And they're all kind of in less of a good place right now. They're all back. It looks awful. It's so flat and stiff. It looks like a bootleg. It looks like, you know, kind of in the 90s, all these random animation studios put out like Snow White. Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, these are public domain stories that anyone can make a movie of. It looks like one of those. It looks rotten. (laughs) Uh, uh, Okay, the plot. The circus is in town, and the evil magician who runs the circus, voiced by Better Call Saul and Spinal Tap legend Michael McKeon, in the nadir of his career and life, wants to steal one of the bells. Okay. Because... There's a bell, right? And inside of this bell, loads of jewels. You cut it, from the outside, just looks like a rusty old bell. But on the inside, it's beautiful. It's uh, almost like some kind of metaphor or summit. I see. What How would that there. even work as a bell? <laughs> it wouldn't. Well, it would not ring. That bell would not function. Sorry. This is the worst. This is the worst. Disney sequel. There was that kind of cobbled together Beauty and the Beast three different stories thing. That was pants as well, but this is <laughs> bad. But Hugo, this is the plus point, Hugo finally gets a big lick on the face from that goat. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that, that relationship is resolved. Jennifer Love Hewitt's in it. What? Yeah, she plays a member of the circus. The evil magician sends this woman to kind of seduce Quasimodo to find out where the bell is. And, like, it's in the bell tower, mate. But he's like, you go and you find out where the bell is. It's like, I know where it is. It's in the biggest building in the city. It's up there where all the bells are. So she she goes for Quasimodo and they end up kind of falling in love and that's the story. But, oh, man, I, I got very animated there. I got a lot more animated than The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2. <laughs> <laughs> Which is barely kinetic. Um, There is allegedly a live-action remake of this coming out, just called Hunchback, 
which feels like it's not going to happen. That is supposed to be produced by and potentially starring Josh Gad, who feels like he's maybe a bit too old to be in it now, but he's involved in some capacity. And about 10 years ago, ABC announced a live-action Esmeralda TV show, which I guess is the story from the point of view of Esmeralda, but that's, that's not happening. Anyway, none of that is what I really want to talk about, because the perfect version of this story exists. The version of this movie with all the songs, even more songs from Mencken and Schwartz, and either zero gargoyles or gargoyles which are very explicitly figments of Quasi's imagination, depending on which version you watch. That exists. And it is a German musical called Der Glockner von Notre Dame. Okay. Is it Disney or is this a separate adaptation? It's, no, it's Disney. I wouldn't be right. mentioning it. Obviously, there's loads of hunchbacks of Notre Dame. This is Disney. This has the songs. This has new songs from, from the same team. This was put on in Berlin in 1999 because Germany was apparently one of the countries where the film performed the best. So they got everybody back. They got James Lapine to write and direct, who was a Broadway legend, and he wrote and directed a lot of Sondheim musicals, some of his best stuff, like Sunday in the Park with George and Into the Woods. They got that guy. And it's the film. Like, these shows are described... There was a a separate one in in America in 2014, which is a bit different. These are described as being based on the novel by Victor Hugo with songs from the Disney film. So Esmeralda dies at the end. Quasi kills Frollo. The gargoyles are imaginary. And the American version... And we haven't mentioned this, actually. The American version also makes Quasi death. Because in the novel, he is death. Because he's a bell ringer. All he does is ring bells, so his hearing's gone. And in some versions, they have cast a deaf actor as Quasimodo and had a different actor perform his his singing voice. And the idea is that because he's deaf, his kind of speech is imperfect when he's performing as Quasimodo, but when he's singing, because that's his expressivity being literalised, because this is kind of how he feels he sounds in his head it's a different actor it's an interesting way to do it and it feels like quite a respectful way to do it as well to me as someone with with no authority to speak on the matter and it keeps the gnarly ending with the spoon and skeletons oh really wow okay so we need to see if they're going to put that on in the uk at some point and uh we'll all have to go and see it with the spooky ending with frollo getting chucked off the roof but we still get to hear all the songs Sounds perfect to me. And that is it for this week's class. Mike, have you enjoyed your time on the evolution of Disney... Sorry, on Disneyversity with us this episode? (laughs) Have you had a fun time? I've loved it. Who knew there was so much to say about this weird 90s Disney film that barely anyone seems to remember? So it's been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. And it's just a blast. I love your podcast so much. Your regular podcast is incredible. Everyone needs to go and check out all the previous seasons of The Evolution of Horror, but get in line for the Home Invasion series starting soon. And you have so much great stuff on your Patreon as well you have tons of different tiers with bunches of extra mini series and i listened through all of your m night Shyamalan series that you did oh. earlier this year <laughs> and a big halloween rewatch and you've got a scream podcast that's coming back hello sydney is coming back you've been you're busy man 
It's an absolutely crazy month, but thank you so much. Yeah, um, if, if there are any horror fans out there, you know, or even if you're not a horror fan, if you're just interested in film history, which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, then c- come and check us out, The Evolution of Horror. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. I am doing a little spin-off limited one at the moment for Paramount called Hello Sydney, yeah, which is kind of looking at all the Scream movies. Yeah, tons of stuff on Patreon as well. So yeah, I'm everywhere. <laughs> including literally because you have live events screening great horror films and talking about them afterwards with interesting people you did christine the other day in manchester right yeah. john carpenter's christine that's been really fun we've been partnering with different cinemas around the uk and we're, we're going to be sort of coming to uh, we've got loads of different screenings basically it's kind of hosting screenings of horror and cult classics followed by live podcast recordings on stage we're going to brighton to the duke of york's picture house to do the birds for its 60th anniversary soon in april we're going to Reading to do Pet Cemetery. We're going to Cambridge to do Ring for its 25th anniversary. Uh, we are also doing regularly always stuff in London as well. And we're hopefully coming uh, to other parts of the UK throughout the next few months as well. So you can keep an eye on all of that on our website, evolutionofhorror.com. Who knows? Maybe one day we can team up for a Hunchback of Notre Dame screening. We'll bring the horror community and the Disney community together in one big crazy screening. <laughs> yes. But join us again for our next seminar as we go from zero to hero just like that with Disney's take on Hercules. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating, if you take just a couple of seconds, whatever podcast app you're listening on, please give us a little star rating if you have some words to say about the show. We'll take you to the top of Notre Dame for the finest view in Paris and maybe treat you to a puppet show too. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Mike. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. That is going to be in my head for the next two weeks at least. Catch you next time, people. Bye. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.